Well, good morning. I'm going to take just a minute. We have been here long enough to realize that this is the trap for all new speakers, is this stand. I've seen it go flying on five or six occasions, so we're going to treat it very gently. I am not going to pull the top of it. I'm just going to pull this part, and then we'll kind of settle in. I think we've made it past the most critical part right there, so we're good to go for the rest of the morning. We're okay. Good morning. It's good to be here with you and uh, excited to uh, open God's Word together this morning. As I was thinking about this particular text and thinking about us launching into Advent, it struck me that we're in a season of things that are too good to be true. Right? You with me? The advertising that tells us all the products that will solve our ills, they will rescue our souls, they will make us happy eternally if we just purchase them in this Black Friday season, right? <laughs> and we've purchased a lot of them, and the promise is always too good to be true. On a more poignant level, we have these grand hopes for family gatherings and a Christmas morning where the Christmas story is more attractive than those presents sitting under the tree. And sometimes our hopes are too good to be true. And so we walk into this season both for me and I think for a lot of us excited every year to think again about Christ coming And at the same time, we oftentimes have these little twinges of what will happen this year when my family gathers? What will happen this year when the year is done and I have to look ahead to next year? What will happen this year when we gather together and we think about Christ's coming? What will happen this year? Are the promises too good to be true? For many of us, this is actually an ongoing struggle. This is just the time of year that we put to it, right? We think about the the character we're going to meet this morning is Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. He's serving in the temple, and he sits in a moment not unlike where we are, right? Way in their past, centuries before, Israel had experienced their return from exile. It was one of the great promises of God given through the prophets centuries in advance. He said, I'm going to send you into exile, and then I will bring you home. And they had experienced that. But they also thought at that moment that they were going to get Isaiah's golden age. Right then, as soon as they came home, they were expecting the lion to lay down with the lamb. They were expecting for the king to come, that he would rule over them and over the entire world. And they've been sitting now for about 500 years, and none of those parts of the promise came true. So they're looking ahead, and they know that he's promised the Messiah. They know he's promised that justice will come. They know they've promised that he'll deal with sin. They're looking forward to him, but it seems so far in the future. So that today, for Zechariah, I'm not sure how much the promises really meant. For him, at this moment, they seemed too good to be true. It's kind of where we sit, right? We look backwards in a season like this to Christ's coming. We'll get to Easter and we'll look backwards to his cross, his death, and his resurrection. And then we'll look forward. I'm with Dave. I'm looking forward to the second coming. But the question comes this afternoon when I leave here and I go home. Do either one of those make much of a difference in this afternoon's life? The promise of what he did looks great, and I believe that. And the hope of something when I die or in the distant future is powerful and compelling. But sometimes, if I'm real and honest, tomorrow morning, some of those things seem too good to be true to make a difference today in my life. That's 
where Zechariah is as we meet him in the temple, serving the Lord, not unlike us gathering here together in a service together as we meet him, this is what he's wrestling with. He's confident that his redemption is secure. He's seen God's great acts in the past. He's confident that in the future the Lord will act and all will be made right. But the question is, what does the Lord's coming mean for him today at this moment? So let's look at his story as we meet Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He was a faithful, godly man. But much like us, although he believed in what God had done, he struggled to hope in what God was doing. So let's explore what it might look like to believe in what God has done, to hope in what he will do, and to rest in what he's doing right now. Let's walk this road of faith with Zechariah. We're going to be in Luke 1 verses 5 through 25. And this text, I think it'll help us. I'm going to read through all of it uh, in one shot here, and then we'll go back and look at the pieces. I want to get you a feel for everything that's happening here. So we're going to pick up in verse 5 and read through verse 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly and all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were now advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we consider your word to your servant Zechariah that you might teach us today as well what it means to look to your promise, to trust in you, to bring all that we need. We pray that you might help us, Father, as we begin to anticipate this Advent season, what it was like for him to anticipate the coming of your son that first time. 
The same way we look forward to his second coming. And so help us, Lord, to see you and all that you are to us and your promises for us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. The opening of the story tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth are ordinary people just like us. Right? They're gathered with the people of God. He's serving. He's doing his function as a priest, not unlike a pastor would on a Sunday morning. And he's doing his service before the Lord. Now, it's interesting. This is the first time we start to get some mentions, though, in the text that if you're a good Israelite, you're starting to think, well, maybe there's something interesting here. Right? He's a priest, but she's the daughter, and she flows through the line of Aaron. We're going to start to get, Luke is going to start to drop a whole bunch of names in these next few chapters as we lead up to the coming of the Messiah. He's going to talk about Moses. He's going to talk about Aaron. He's going to talk about Abraham and begin to seed us with ideas of people who in the past had seen God work and make great promises and bring them to fulfillment. And we start to get little hints of that here as she comes from the line of Aaron, who with Moses led the people through the desert, through the wilderness and brought to them the word of God as they first began to worship in the tabernacle and see the visible signs of their sin forgiven as they made offering in the day of atonement. She comes from that line. She comes from a line of promise. But at this moment, they're everyday people just like us. We know they're everyday because they suffer like us as well. They've wanted all these years, and they're well past the time when they could bear children naturally They're at a place and a moment when they still desperately want a child, and they don't have one. They're just like us. They're faithful people, yet they're also people who suffer. And this is who the word of the Lord comes to. Now, some of us will start reading this, and we've got to fix one thing, okay? If you remember nothing else from this morning, this will serve you a lifetime of reading the scriptures, okay? You can apply this to Abraham, you can apply it to Noah, go down the line with the exception of Jesus. This applies to everybody you read about who's listed as being righteous and blameless. They're not righteous and blameless because they're perfect. That's usually how I read these kinds of stories. I read them and think, wow. They are much better at this whole walking with Jesus thing than I am. Righteous and blameless means they followed the law. That's actually what it tells us. They were righteous and blameless, and they walked in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Well, what were those commandments and statutes? Those were things like the Day of Atonement, dealing with their sin and making sacrifice for it. You see, we tend to think of the law as they would have seen it as something that we use like Advil out of the medicine cabinet. I take it in medical parlance, PRN, as needed. But it's on a dosage because the law regularly assumes that our condition is sinful and contaminated and in need. So it prescribes weekly and monthly and annual festivals and times of dealing with sin. So they're righteous and blameless not because they were sinless, They're righteous and blameless because they were forgiven. So they stand in the same place that we do. So as you read about Noah, or as you read about Abraham, or as we read about Zechariah, don't set them on a pedestal and say God chose them because they were good. God forgave them because he's gracious. And we can sit in that same place. We've used the provision he's given us. Jesus' sacrifice. And so you can sit here this morning Righteous and blameless because you've run to him and to his cross. So they're ordinary people like us. 
This is not happening to them because they're extraordinary. It's not happening to them because they deserve it. It's happening to them because God is gracious and they've fallen at his feet for his mercy and grace. That's where we sit this morning. At the same time, though, if I'm really honest here, there is a little something unique about them, right? Their picture is unique for Israel and not quite the same for us. You see, when God made his covenant with Israel and he wanted to make them a nation, he said, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to bless you physically. And I'm going to do that so that all the nations around you will see this and they're going to go, who is this God that you worship? So if you read places like Deuteronomy 7, it says that if they were righteous and they followed the law, one of the things they would not experience is barrenness. So at the same time that they're ordinary folk, they also serve as a picture of their whole nation because they're righteous and they're blameless, and yet not all the blessings God had promised in the law have come true for them. Because he looks at them and he says, you need so much more than a child. You need to not have to have the Day of Atonement every year. You need to not have my spirit be so distant from you. He needs to be in you. I need to fulfill all those promises I made through the prophets. And I need to bring you the Messiah. And you're a little picture of what it looks like for my whole nation. You're my people, and yet you're suffering because you need to be saved. And so I'm going to send my Messiah to you. They were barren, but it was not because of anything that they had done. Note here that it tells us explicitly that they're righteous and blameless, and yet they're barren. And so they serve as this little picture of what's going on in the nation. So we're kind of primed to think of them online with other Old Testament stories of Abraham and Sarah waiting for a child, of Israel waiting for the promises to come true. And here we get it, both the nation is waiting and this couple is waiting for God to act and move. And yet, God's acted way in the distant past. And they believe God's going to act in the distant future. But they sit here like Israel at every generation, but what will happen in my life? And then the angel pops in. The beautiful thing is here, Zechariah is going to get exactly what he asked for. Now, when he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, the angel comes to him and says, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. This is a personalized message for them, and it's rooted in their prayers that they've been diligently taking to God their whole married life. Saying, Father, we want a son. Father, we want a daughter. Father, we want children. We want a family. And they've continued to take this even into their old age. But notice where the angel begins. Whenever God breaks in, our instinctive reaction is one of fear. Right? It happens in the garden. Adam and Eve sin. They run when they hear God coming. It's always one of fear Because we always know that he's, right, we talked about it this morning, he's a holy God, we sang that. And we're sinful people. And so our instinction is to run from him when he or his messengers appear. But his first word to us is fear not. I'm sending my son, and the first thing you need to know is don't be afraid. This is good news for you. Your prayer has been heard. Zechariah has been bringing this request for a child, and God has both heard and acted on his request. In this case, his answer is going to be yes. But it starts to get you to think, what else has Zechariah been praying for? 
Right? He's a priest and he's offering incense. Yes, he's been praying for himself, but he's also had to have been praying for his nation and his people and for all the other promises, not just Deuteronomy 7 and we want a child because we've been righteous, but all the other promises of a Messiah to come and peace to reign and justice to be given and the Romans to be thrown off so that a righteous king might finally reign over their people. He's been praying for all those as he's offering incense. Right, You've got to think about where he's standing. He's offering incense. He's right outside of the Holy of Holies. You know, it's later in the text, people get worried when he doesn't come out uh, because they're wondering, if something goes wrong in there, usually if something goes wrong, it means you don't walk out. You get drug out, right? Things don't go well in that kind of setting. So they're wondering, what's wrong with him? So as he's there, you know when you get those senses of being overwhelmed by God's holiness? My issues are on the table, but suddenly my vision gets much bigger because God's work has always been beyond me. It's always included those around me and the whole world. So what else has he been praying for? He's been praying for all of these things. And we know that that's what God is answering because he tells him, Elizabeth's going to bear you a son, but notice how he describes this son. And you will have joy and gladness. Right? What you've been praying for is going to come true, and you're going to receive joy and gladness. But look at this. Many will rejoice at his birth. Now, not because they're thrilled for you that you're going to have a child. Many will rejoice at his birth because he will be great before the Lord. And then he lays out some qualifiers for his life, which moves us a little beyond the average child being born here. Right? He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Right? This is why John leaps in uh, Elizabeth's womb when Mary's there, because the Spirit's already at work in him to signal that Mary's child is no ordinary child. And that's John's job, is to point people to Jesus and say, this is the promised one we've been waiting for. And it starts even before he knows as the Spirit works in him. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the, people, for the Lord a people prepared. This is how God answers prayer. It's for you. And it's for his people. And that's what he does here with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John. He will be great before the Lord. Not, and this is like, right, this is like Zechariah and Elizabeth. John's not going to be great because of something inherent in him. He's going to be great because he's going to be the one who was chosen to give the message, the one who comes is the Messiah you have been waiting for. And then he's going to increase, I'm going to decrease, and I got to say, the king is here. That's his greatness, that he bears the message of the king is coming. He's going to give that message, and then he's going to step aside. Jesus will say that anyone in the kingdom will be greater than John, but there's been no greater human than John because he announced the coming of the Messiah, that he is here and he is now. The marker being done by wine is a Nazarite vow. It's known in the Old Testament law. And it had some different uses there. But here, the way it's functioning is to give us the same contrast that Paul does when Paul says, don't be drunk, right, but be filled with the Spirit. Part of the reason that he's going to abstain from wine his whole life is to make it clear that all that he does and everything that he says is driven not because he's intoxicated, not because he's in some ecstatic prophetic state, 
but because he is controlled by the Spirit of God. So his word is true, and you can trust it, and you need to trust it because look at the outcome of his ministry. He will go before the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of justness. Well, who's the wisdom that's coming? He's going to turn their hearts to Jesus, not to some abstract principle. He's going to point them to Jesus. He's going to turn the fathers to the children. And this is really, it's picking up language from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, really verses 4 through 6. And what's promised is that God would send Elijah. And Jesus will say later, if you're willing to hear this, what God has done is to send John in the spirit of Elijah. Same kind of ministry. Elijah was known for boldly, proclaiming that God is true and everything else you might hold on to is false. So fill in the name of what you might, you might plant your life on. In his day in Elijah, it was the God Baal that they all worshipped and thought that's where the rain came from. And he goes through that big thing on Mount Carmel so that he can prove, no, no, God is the only place you can plant your life. John's going to come through and say the same thing. He's going to say, your only hope is to repent of your sin and throw yourself on the mercy of the one who comes. And he can do things for you I cannot because he will baptize you with spirit and with fire. And this is where your life will come from. And so he works through John here to do so much more, to turn the fathers and the children back to each other. If you go back and you read around the time of the exile, one of the most common things to do in Jeremiah and Ezekiel is to figure out who's to blame for why we're in exile. Right? And for the kids, it was always to blame the, the, the parents, right? They got a little proverb, the fathers ate sour grapes and set the children's teeth on edge. I've got a toothache because you old folks sinned. Thanks very much. Now we're sitting in exile. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are going to walk through, kind of like Paul in the beginning of Romans, and go, let's work our way through here. And I'm counting noses, and everybody's responsible for us sitting in exile. It's not generational. You're not better than your parents. And it's not society cascading downhill, right? It's not like the parents were blameless and now the children have messed everything up that we gave them. No, we have all sinned and we all sit in this mess because we've each one turned away from God. So instead of blaming each other, the children and the fathers, we put back together because they'll both be pointed to Christ as John said, there's the lamb of the world that takes away the sin. That's the one that you need. And it's not because your generation failed, you did. And it's not because your generation failed, you did. It's because we're all sinful and he's the only one who can take this away. So they're looking forward to this promise and this hope. They're going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared. So that they can be what he's always created them to be. Think about it. Going back to Genesis 1. He created us to have dominion, to subdue the earth, to fill it, to spread his name to every corner of the globe. And say, we're here under the reign of God. And this is his place. And then when sin entered, he went back to one family. He said, okay, here's one family to proclaim to the world. We're here under the reign of God. And we proclaim his name to you that you can be under his reign as well and have relationship with him. And then that narrowed, that grew out to a nation and then to a line of kings and then to the Messiah. 
so that the Messiah might have a people prepared to do and be all that God had wanted his people to be. Now, those are some pretty big promises. And Zechariah is getting exactly what he asked for. And Zechariah's response is pretty much mine. Right? I'm going to look at that and go, that is too good to be true. I've been set up for this before. I thought we were pregnant. Didn't happen. Thought we were going to have a family. It didn't come true. I thought that this gift was going to be the one that would really make that person happy. This family event would be the one where finally we had no conflict. There was no tension. I've been down this hopeful road before. So before I believe and I get hurt, you put some proof on the table. Right? Listen to what he says. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. We could translate the way, he says it, the way he says this as on what basis, on what proof do I rest my trust in you? That's interesting. It's very different than Mary's question later. Mary's got a lot more to struggle with believing, right? She's going to have a child without having relationships with a man. And her question is not, how do I know this is going to be true? Her question is, How? This, this, we have no context for this in, in humanity, so how will this happen? That's not Zechariah's question. He's, yeah, he says my wife is old, but his question is what proof, on what basis do I believe this? Because I've been down this road of hope before. He's been praying, and he receives the exact answer he's looking for, but he doesn't believe that God can carry through on the promise. I'm pretty skeptical by nature, right? I'm, I'm a relatively cynical kind of soul uh, when you put me into these sorts of context. And as I was working through this text, I'm like, I really do this on a fairly regular basis with God, right? Let's just look at some basic things God has promised his people that I reject on a regular basis, right? There's no temptation that comes upon you, but that he gives you a way of escape. And how many times do I sit in a moment of temptation and I believe there's no way out? So you give in. I don't actually believe because I failed enough. I become skeptical that God will actually provide. God gives us means of how we restore relationships through direct conversations, right? Matthew 5, Matthew 18, you go and you have these conversations. You pull in other people as you need them. But I could just be quiet and just let it sail through. What actually go through that? Because it might not all pan out the way that we thought. God promises me that his word is rich and alive. It feeds my soul and I live off of it more than I live off of the bread, right? The Thanksgiving that we just had, probably still rumbling around for us, right? I don't live off of that. I live off of his word. But how many times do I look at his word and say, it was probably pretty optional for today. I'm okay with that. I'm skeptical at times that the most basic things he's promised his children will actually pan out for me. And so I kind of say, well, put some proof on the table. And then when something does happen that's striking in my life, right? Then you get that little upsurge, and suddenly the word's a little more prominent, prayer's a little more prominent because I see him working, so now I'm excited to run in that direction. We're Zechariah, getting exactly what we asked for. And we say, but you've got to prove it to me first. 
The angel's response is kind but firm, right? This is sort of one of those uh, Job-like moments, gird up your loins and we're going to have a conversation. And Job begs, no, 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 please don't make me say anything else. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to ask you some more and you're going to talk some more and just begging to get out of there, right? The angel says to him, you have this backwards. You're assessing the promise and I want you to assess the promiser. Zechariah's mindset is the promise is too good to be true. Gabriel says God is too good for his word not to come true. You're asking all the wrong questions. Notice how he answers Zechariah. The angel answered him, I, kind of matching Zechariah's whole list of eyes that are running, and I am this, I am this, my wife is this. He says, okay, you want to lay down kind of Vita's? I can put my resume on the table. I'm Gabriel, one of only two named angels in the Old Testament who came to Daniel in the midst of a battle, right? He says, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. Just in case we want to put this in pecking order, right now, Zechariah, you stand outside the the little curtain. You can't go in there without dying. I stand in his presence on a day-to-day basis. So why don't you just be quiet for a minute and listen to someone who actually knows? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And notice here, now, lest you think he thinks too much of himself, I'm nothing more than a messenger. I didn't come of my own accord. I didn't think this would be good for you today. I was sent. This is not my authority, it's his. Behind that curtain, the presence of God, I was sent to you. To bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now this is the beautiful part. Zechariah and I think me and probably some of you get kind of put in our place and we're told you need to just stop talking for a little bit. But the beauty is the promise is not dependent on Zechariah's reception of it, right? It's going to be fulfilled in its time because it's of God's doing. We may doubt Jesus' second return. He's still coming, right? They doubted his first coming. He still came. They doubted that he would actually die on the cross, and he did, and they doubted that if he died that he could raise, and he did. The promise has never been dependent on us. Right? This is why it's okay, right? If you really kind of unpack this, I don't want any of the patriarchs in my family. I don't want Abraham in my family, right? I don't want Abraham dating one of my daughters, right? I certainly don't want, when we go downhill from Abraham, I don't want any of them. They're not great people, but that's the beauty of it. They're redeemed people. Because the promise has always been God's to fulfill and just ours to receive. Well, it was Abraham giving away Sarah, the mother of the promised child, twice, and then teaching his son Isaac to do the same thing. God kept the promise going. Well, it was Judah, who was the lamest of all the sons and did horrible things. Joseph, if we're writing the story, is the guy who should become the line of the king. It's not him. 
It's Judah because it was never about Judah. It was about God's promise. So Zechariah, you're going to be quiet for a season. You're going to be unable to share this. But here's the beauty. It's still going to happen because I was sent to tell you it's his decision and it's been made and it's done. That's where we rest in this moment. He has acted greatly in the past. The cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Spirit, and he will act greatly in the future. But neither what he did in the past to pay for my sins nor what he will do in the future to bring it all to conclusion rests on me getting it all right in between. I sit there and I receive his promise. It doesn't mean that I'm passive and that we don't do things, but we start from this place of rest. We start from Romans 8.1, right? There is no condemnation. Now we're going to work out the rest of how this works and the way that you put your labor into this once you get that the lack of condemnation had nothing to do with you. It had to do with his work and adopting you as his children. Now we can talk about the prepared people and what he wants his people to, get, to do. Faith begins with a backward look. Faith starts with saying, God has acted, God has spoken. Hope looks forward to the things we have not yet seen, but we believe that he will do. But those two come together in the moment and say, each day I believe in the past and I hope for today I trust that he will act as he has promised and we step forward in belief and faith. Zechariah knew enough and believed enough to look backwards. God had been there in the past, but he didn't have enough faith to look forward to today with hope that God would fulfill his promises. He did not believe even when told by an angel. Right? How many of us think, if God would just say it more clearly, if he'd send me an angel, if I could have seen Jesus, it doesn't work. Right? People saw Jesus do the miracles, still didn't believe. Zechariah received the word from Gabriel, still said, I'm not sold. Because we focus on the promise instead of the one who gives the promise. He is too good for his word not to come true. And so we end up in a place not unlike where Zechariah ended up, right? He comes out, he's seen this wonderful work of God, he's received this promise and he can't say anything. All right, I feel like that a lot. It's pretty easy for me to explain to someone the cross, the death, the resurrection of Christ, those things that happened in history. It's relatively easy for me to tell people, you know what, here is my hope in eternity. I die today. I'm good. I will be in the presence of the Father. It becomes harder right now sometimes to express the relevancy of God for tomorrow morning. This struggle I'm facing becomes a little bit more difficult for me to put feet to God's promises working out in my life. I become like Zechariah, right? I know what's happened and I can point, but I can't quite articulate God's relevancy in this moment. We hamstring ourselves because we look only to the past and only to the future and not now. We don't look to the promise the one who gives it, that he is too good for his promises not to come true. As we consider this Christmas season, God's coming. 
don't abandon either one of those ends, right? Don't ever forget about the cross of Christ and the things that God has done in the past. And don't ever leave behind the hope of what he'll do in the future. But refuse to live your lives without the relevancy of God today. And just think about the short, we'll do a short list of promises he's given his children. He came to give us abundant life. So like Paul, we could be content in plenty or in want. He came to give us peace, not as the world gives peace, but as he gives it. He came to give us forgiveness and a real relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He gave us the ability to know what's good and pleasing to him so that we can act in that way. He promises us wisdom, all that we need for life and godliness, and we could just fill the next hour with what he said, this is your gift from me as your father. But I'm skeptical of those. They seem too good to be true. Because I focus on the promise and on me and whether or not I have enough faith for those promises to be real. And Gabriel says, no, it's about the one who sent me and the one who makes the promises. He is too good for the promises not to come true. So this Christmas season, as we focused on Christ's entrance into the world, I challenge myself and I challenge you, ask what would it look like for Christ to enter each day and not just to enter at the end of time? What would it look like for you to say, like Mary, how? And not like Zechariah, give me some proof. This is what God calls us to, as he calls us to have hope in his promise of the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you would give us your son and that you would do all these things for us, your children. So we ask that you would give us faith that we might believe that we might believe in you as a father who gives good gifts and knows how to do that for his children. We're grateful for all that you have done through him and pray that you might open our eyes to see that you really do wish to prepare us as your people for all that you have called us to do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.